Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Solomon said, the longer a guy lives, the more evil he sees. With many days comes much evil. And there's a certain point where you just say, come now, Jesus, come back quickly. And may that be the cry of our heart. Even if we're in a good season in our life or a tough season in our lives, may that truly be the cry of our heart. Do we face each new day knowing that today might be the day that Jesus returns? While some may mock his return, many of those who do believe have grown tired of waiting and waiting. Be encouraged today by more of our message out of 2 Peter 3 and the reminder that God is not slack concerning his promises and that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Here's Robert Furrow with part two of our encouraging message out of 2 Peter 3, 1 through 11. There was a lot of chatter going on in various places about the return of the Lord in 1974. So on New Year's Eve, we went over to a friend's house. We all laid out on the lawn and we were watching. Jesus is going to come back before 1975. I had my first point of disappointment about the return of the Lord. And I've had a few of those since then. I remember Pastor Chuck who is, when it comes to prophecy, was just one of the very best at being able to point to prophecies and understanding them and seeing them. And I remember he put out a a program called uh, Survival 2000. You guys ever see that show? It's a great show. It documents the birth of the nation of Israel and it documents the war, the 67 war of Israel and the 73 war of Israel. But the whole title of the thing is, Will the Earth Survive Till 2000? I remember, and it's been, it was a big controversy with Pastor Chuck too, that he said at one point, if the Lord doesn't come back before 1985, I'll be surprised. And people are like, well, then Jesus is coming back before 1985. But Jesus didn't come back in 1985. And you know what the truth was there? Chuck was surprised. (laughs) But that's all that statement means. He didn't say, the Lord is coming back before 1985. He said, if the Lord doesn't come back by 1985, then I will be surprised. The truth is, when we say we're living in the last days, we mean Jesus could come back at any moment and we've got these signs going on. With God, it might be be tomorrow. It might be 50 years. It might be 100 years. It might be that we're grooming the generation that will be there when Christ returns. Who knows? Who knows what our actual place is? But we still can't ignore the promise of his coming. And Jesus saying, be ready and stay ready because you do not know when I'm coming back. Which is, by the way, you talk about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and a lot of that's fallen by the wayside. A lot of people aren't all that concerned about it anymore. But if you believe that Jesus could come back at any moment... If you believe you could come back right now, then your theology is pre-trib because we're not in the tribulation now. So you believe that he could come back at any moment. And you kind of got to be, you got to be pre-trib to some degree. Otherwise you're going, well, we got to have the, the beginning of the tribulation period. We have to have the revelation of the Antichrist before we can have Jesus come back in the middle and certainly before the end. And so if you're looking for the Antichrist, then when all of these things begin to take place, then we need to identify the Antichrist. That's why I've never worried about trying to figure out, is the Antichrist Henry Kissinger? That's the first one I heard, by the way. Is the Antichrist, you know, Ronald Reagan, some people said, and, and on and on. 
I don't think that we know who the Antichrist is. And I think we'll be gone before the Antichrist is ever revealed because it doesn't say when you see these things start taking place, then look around, you figure out who the Antichrist is. It says, look up for your redemption draws nigh. And uh, so their mocking is coming, saying, where is the promise of return, his return? Because we've gone on for so long. And there's been a lot of pastors over a lot of time saying, Jesus is coming back. Get ready, get ready. And we should. We should say, get ready and stay ready. It ought to be something for you. It ought to be something that you look forward to. It ought to be something that means something to you and causes purity in your life and, and, and a hope for the future. And we ought to comfort one another with the, the idea that Jesus is coming back for us. You know, if you're in a season where life is really good for you right now, then the hope of his return, you might go, well, I don't know. I mean, things are pretty good right now. But there's some of you guys here right now that you'd say, I'm ready for him to come back. Life is, is tough. And I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Solomon said, the longer a guy lives, the more evil he sees. With many days comes much evil. And there's a certain point where you just say, come now, Jesus, come back quickly. And may that be the cry of our heart. Even if we're in a good season in our life or a tough season in our lives, may that truly be the cry of our heart. He goes on to say that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fall asleep, all things continue as from the beginning of creation. And by the way, the Bible says that from the beginning to the end, the sun will rise and the sun will set. The, the Old Testament tells us that there's going to be a continuation of things, but we have a tendency to see things the way they are and to make decisions based upon what's happened in the past, not realizing that one day everything will radically change. It says in verse five, for they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that existed perished being flooded with water. So he's talking about the flood. And it's interesting that he says, by which they willfully forget. I think that there's a willful movement to do away with the proof for the flood. I think that the evidence for the flood is there in a lot of different ways. There was the movie that was released a while ago that was the, the writings of Gilgamesh rather than the biblical Noah. Any of you guys go to it? How disappointed were you? You know, it's like on biblical movies anymore, I just go, I don't think I'm going to go because I'm, I'm never excited after I go to a, to a biblical movie. But there are flood stories in every single culture. There is geographical evidence that the flood, that the whole world at one point or another was completely underwater. And there's a lot of evidence towards the flood and they willingly forget they want to forget. They want it to be something different. They literally are fighting against God when they want it to be different. And if a scientist starts to make a stand, if a scientist today says, I'm a creationist and I believe in the flood, then to a large degree, they are committing professional suicide because they are seen as a, as a quack. But I think that that is a fear because they willingly forget the flood that, that stood out of water. And, and if you willingly forget that God judged the world one day and flooded it out and saved eight people through it and that was it, then, hey, everything's going on just like it has always been and judgment is never going to come. Took Noah 100 years. People lived a lot longer in those days. Noah, it took him 100 years to build the boat. 
For a hundred years, they must have thought, this guy is out of his mind. He's building a boat. It hadn't even rained up to that point yet. And he's building a boat. It goes on to say then, verse uh, 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. The word perdition means waste and ungodly men. The same heavens, the same earth is reserved for fire. There is going to come a day when the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. Jesus will return for his church. He will finish things up here on earth. We will have the thousand year reign and then we will go on into eternity. And who knows all that's going to take place in eternity. But these things are set for vanity. They are set for nothingness. If you're a person that lives for stuff, well, sooner or later, that stuff doesn't mean anything to you. Even if we're not talking about the destruction of the world, whatever your greatest value is, whatever you prize above everything else, if it's a car, if it's a house, if it's your, your stash of, of gold or whatever you have, all of that will one day burn. It's meant to be destroyed. God created it to be used here and then gonna be burned. It goes on to say then in verse eight, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. And can you sense the emotion here? Peter has been very emotional. And now he kind of pleads with them. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. God doesn't live in time. When I was a kid, I used to lay down on the front yard of my house and look at the sky and I would think, where does the universe begin? But it can't have a beginning, but it's got to have a beginning, but it can't have a beginning. It's got to have a beginning. And where does the universe end? It's got to have an ending, but it can't have an ending. It's got to have an ending, but it can't have an ending. When did God start? God had to have a beginning, but he couldn't have had a beginning. When is God going to end? He's got to have an end, but he can't have an end. Thinking of putting, I put God in time and that was my problem. God created our time, space, matter continuum. The world that we live in, we're moving through time. We have matter and there's space. All those three things God created. The Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hands. If you took a light and shined it, it would go 13.5 billion years that way if you were outside and 13.5 billion years that way. And God says, it's that big. I don't think that we can even understand the size of something that is, is 13.5 billion years out to the end of the universe one way. And the Bible says that God measures that with the width of his hand. And you and I say, here we are in that universe, in this galaxy that's spinning around the universe at this incredible speed, in our solar system that's spinning around the galaxy at this incredible speed, in the earth that's spinning while it's going around our solar system, inside the galaxy, inside the universe. And some of you guys are dizzy right now. You're wondering why am I dizzy? And God created all of that. And then there's the earth and there's people on the earth. And there we are. There you are. God created it all. God placed you here. And we think, at times, it's easy for us to think of God as being a part of that time, space, matter continuum. But God created it. So he stands outside of it and he looks at it. And this is the 
that's why God is transcended to us. How are you going to, and that's a fancy theologian word, yeah, transcended, the idea that God is transcendent, that he is above our thoughts, that we can't figure God out. No wonder he is. If all we can do is know the world that we live in, time, space, and, and matter, think about stepping into eternity where there is no time, going through eternity without time. Think about, just kind of put the, the, the sci-fi people who are here, maybe have read a lot of time books or saw a lot of time movies. Just think about the implications of that. That at the moment that you die, you step out of time and into that timeless region. To God, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. Pastor Chuck used to talk about it this way, that it's like being on a corner watching a parade go by. And you've got the first float that goes by and you stand there for 45 minutes until the last float goes by. But the guy, there's a guy in the blimp up above it that looks down on the parade and he sees the last one and he sees the first one at the same time. It's all about perspective. And so God, from his heavenly, eternal perspective, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's taken this 1900 years before the Lord has come back. To him, it's a blink of an eye. But why has God waited so long? Well, it goes on to say here, but beloved, do not forget that this one thing that to the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. He isn't slacking off. They might mock, but he's not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. Now, I have that verse underlined and starred in my Bible as a reminder to me that God wants all to be saved and all to come to repentance. Look at it again. Verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is not the only place that the Bible says this. There are several of them that God desires all to be saved that God wills that all would be saved. And this creates great problems for some theological views. And they'll have to spend a lot of time in this verse. And they do a lot of what I call distracting during their messages, trying to get other places and deal with other things and never really dealing with what the passage says and trying to say why that God doesn't want any to perish doesn't really mean that God doesn't want any to perish. And that God wants all to come to repentance doesn't really mean that God wants all to come to repentance. Spend a lot of time trying to figure out why it doesn't say what it says. But God is long-suffering because God wants to give people a chance to be saved. The flood is a great example of this. Uh, Enoch was a prophet. Enoch walked with God and the Bible says he was no more. Enoch had a son named Methuselah. Probably familiar with Methuselah, right? He lived the longest of anybody else. He lived longer than anybody else in all of history. Methuselah's name literally means when he dies, it will take place. Enoch named him that. If you go back and do the math, and I've done it myself just to see if it really came out. If you go back and do the math and you follow from the time that Adam had uh, Seth and, 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 and you just go so on and you get to Enoch and then you get to Methuselah, you come to the year that the flood came. So that God, in essence, gave to Enoch 
When he dies, it will take place. This is the guy that's gonna be alive when the flood happens. And he ended up being the guy that lived the longest out of anybody else on the face of the earth. If that doesn't speak of God's mercy, I don't know what does. God was long suffering even with the flood that he let this guy live to be longer than anybody else so that he could show his mercy. And that's what God's doing today. People mock and say, where's the promise of his coming? But God is waiting because his desire is that more people would come to Christ. And if his desire is that more people would come to Christ, then we want to be doing what God has called us to do. This is our call. If that's what he's doing, if he is long suffering in order for people to make a commitment to him and to come to repentance, repentance is when you turn from one way, when you make a real life change. And God's desire is that they would all come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's that concept that it's just going to come quickly. It's going to come when it's unexpected in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Everything here will be burned up. Everything that you have worked for your whole life will be burned up. Everything that we've established in all of these years in Calvary Chapel of Tucson will be burned up one day. All of the things that cause you stress in your life, all of the stuff will be burned up one day. And here's where I'll end and we'll cover this again next week. Therefore, since all these things will be destroyed, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Isn't that a great thought to come to the end of a Bible study with? If everything is perishing, you and I are living in a temporary world. Things are going faster and faster, it seems, to us anyway. Our life is like a vapor, James said. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And if that's the case for us, then what kind of person ought we to be? And how should we live having our minds set upon Christ and what he wants for us and what he wants us to do, realizing that the time that we have been given and the place that we have been put are ordained by God, that we can live in front of those who are perishing. I'm sure you've noticed. People around us are dying. People are going into eternity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believed in him would not perish. So in holy conduct, we live our lives so that people around us see us and are drawn to Christ. They want to come to Jesus because they see him in us and we're living the way that we should. Let's not get caught up in the materialism of this world, in dwelling upon this earth. We are citizens in heaven and God has blessed us richly, as it said in 1 Peter chapter 1. And that doesn't mean financially, by the way. I mean, it could be, but it doesn't mean it. Anyway, stand up. Let's end it there. Father, we want to thank you. We thank you for all the blessings you have given us. And even in that last thought, we thank you for the possessions that you've given us to be able to meet our needs. But Lord, we also don't want to live for them. We want to live for you. And we want to have our mind set in the proper place that we're just passing through here. We're like Abraham. We're just sojourners. We are here for a while to do the work you've called us to do, called and saved by you and empowered by the Holy Spirit that we would live for you. We pray that you would 
open up doors. Help us to remember this as we begin to move around our world as to what's important and what's not important and that we would shine brightly for you. Give us opportunities and fill us with your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. I want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you have never committed your life to Christ, but you want to. The Bible says in John 1.12 that as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God, even to those who believe in his name. That means that you receive him, you open up. He knocks on the door of your heart and you open up and let him in. Now, when he knocks, you don't have to let him in. You could hear him knock and say, I don't want to live for him. I want to live for myself. I want to live for my fun. I want to live for my pleasure. I want to build my life. I want to live for stuff. You don't have to live for him. And no one here can make you. The Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose life and live, the Bible encourages us. But it tells us that there is a choice in front of us. No one can make that choice for you. No one can force you to become a Christian. And God won't force you to become a Christian. You have to open up that door and receive him and invite him in. And when you do, there is a dynamic change that happens. God moves in and he begins the work of sanctification. Before you were ever a Christian, there wasn't a work of sanctification going on. And now God's doing sanctification. Sanctification is the process of making you holy. He changes you into a new person and he is sanctifying you, setting you apart and making you holy. And some of you here tonight need to begin that process by saying, Lord, forgive my sins. I want you in my life and I surrender myself to you. And whatever you want me to do and wherever you want me to go and however you want me to be used, I'm there for you. You're surrendering your entire life. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. So if you're here today, this evening, you want to give your life to the Lord, then I'm going to ask you to do something simple. Right where you are, just raise your hand. Lift your hand up now. Lift it up high so I can see it. I want to acknowledge your hands. God bless you, sir. The balcony, that's great. God bless the young man right here. Off to the left. That's awesome. God bless you. Couple back over to my right. That's awesome. Anyone else? I'll never forget, as a, just as a boy, hearing a call to surrender my life to Christ and responding to it. And I believe that God heard that call in my heart. And God began to do a work even then. And I believe that's the case for everyone who's raised their hand here today. Those who are ready to surrender to Christ. I would like everyone, including those who raised their hands, and I see your hand under the mezzanine as well. I'd like you all to pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I've sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life and I turn from my sin that I can live for you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to the family of God. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.